I uh, turned uh, 50 ish uh, on September the 25th, and uh, I had a chance to celebrate at Wrigley Field. Uh, my oldest son, Jason, and I uh, caught a ball game against the Pirates. Uh, if you're a baseball fan, and if you're a Brewer fan, you're probably not a baseball fan, but uh, no, no. Um, they're in the midst of a playoff run, and so, uh, so I went, and of course, we, we lost to the Pirates, three to two, then they lost four to zero, and all of a sudden, it starts seeing like the same old Cubs, but uh, <laughs> it was wonderful to, to, to be there. Um, we are going to start, if we can flip to the first uh, slide on my presentation, that'd be awesome. We're going to start a, a two-week series. We're going we're to be talking about conflict. In chapter 15 of Acts, the focus is on ideological, ideological conflict, doctrinal conflict. In the last part of chapter 15, we see personal conflict. And so these next two weeks, we're going to see how God's people deal with conflict. In fact, um, one of the things that I have seen over the years is that um, many times when we enter into conflict, we don't think of it as love, we think of it as war. And so I want to uh, preach in such a way that I hope you will change your mind that there is such a thing as loving conflict and we see it worked out in chapter 15. In the first century AD, fourth century AD in Alexandria, Egypt, um, after Constantine had made Christianity the state religion, um, there arose uh, a serious conflict among the clergy related to the deity of Christ. How was Christ being fully God and fully man? How was that to be understood? And there was a popular priest named Arius uh, who was in the church of Alexandria, Egypt, and uh, he and his followers would literally go through the streets of Alexandria with this chant. There was when he was not. And essentially what they're saying is that there was a time when Jesus Christ was not a being. He wasn't a being, and then at a certain point, he was a being. Now this is totally uh, false theology, so his bishop, Alexander, fought against this with every piece of power that was in him. The problem was with this, Aaron was a very dynamic speaker, had a lot of followers, and so it was hard to squelch. And so Constantine, who was concerned about unity in his kingdom, which expanded all the way up to Rome, you know, through Greece and into Turkey, Syria, Jerusalem, and then into Egypt, he was concerned about his sprawling empire that it would be unified. And so he brought all the, the uh, 300 or so bishops together uh, in Turkey, in Nicaea in particular, to settle this dispute. Now in Acts chapter 15, the early church faces a major theological controversy as well. The church holds its first ecumenical council in Jerusalem, and they want to decide a very crucial question. The question is, how do the Gentiles come to saving faith? Uh, there's a vocal segment of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who had then went into Antioch with their own doctrine. They weren't authorized, but they had been fleshing out their own gospel, and they went in, uh, and these Jewish Christians of the circumcision party, they became known later to be called Judaizers. Uh, they taught that in order for a Gentile to be saved, he needed to become a Jew. So, so you would uh, confess Christ, 
you would become circumcised if you were a male, and then you would be commanded to keep the entire law. The problem is that those whom the Holy Spirit had appointed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles uh, saw God work totally different. And so Peter and Barnabas and Paul had been preaching a different gospel, and so they stood totally against this. Uh, they understood that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone. They had preached that message. They had seen people confess Christ and the Holy Spirit come upon them. And in their minds, there was no need that the, the law, the time of the law, and earning salvation through keeping the law had ended in their minds. And so we have these two different sides. What we see in this chapter is that the church resolves this conflict between those of the circumcision party, the Judaizers, and Paul and Barnabas and um, Peter, uh, that they resolve their conflict through loving confrontation. So what I want to talk about is I want to walk you through chapter 15. I want you to see these four principles. You can call this a spiritual conflict resolution model. That's what this is. First, L, list out the important issues. Two, second, uh, uh, the key stakeholders offer their perspectives. Conflict has a, have persons with emotions and so forth involved, so you gotta hear from people. Third, V, uh, a leader volunteers a spiritual solution. And then last, E, and when it's a major conflict that involves the community, they engage the community of believers. So this is the spiritual conflict resolution model that we see worked out in chapter 15, and I just want to jump right into it. First, they list out the issues. In Acts chapter 15 and 1, certain people from Jerusalem, they leave Jerusalem and they go up north into Antioch, where the church is thriving, where Gentiles and Jews are, are serving God together, and the church is flourishing. Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas are preaching with power. In fact, they've started now to go into, into Syria and into Turkey, spreading the gospel. More Gentiles are coming to faith, and apparently these Jews were a little concerned. And so they, they come to Antioch with this message. Certain people from, came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So they started this in Antioch, and uh, the, the conflict was so serious in Antioch that they sent Paul and Barnabas with these Jewish Christians, they sent them to Jerusalem to settle the matter. And when they got to Jerusalem and they got the elders together and the apostles, they expanded what they taught. Here's what they said when they got to Jerusalem. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas are there with Peter, and they know that this is not the gospel that they've been preaching. And so there's a serious issue at stake. In fact, what Paul had been, this, is, this would be kind of a summary of this new gospel, this different unauthorized gospel. Here's my summation of what it is. Jesus died to save you from your sins and to reconcile you to God. Therefore, repent, accept Jesus as Lord. Sounds pretty good. But then confirm your faith by circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. But Paul in chapter eight, 13 was preaching this. Therefore, my friends, he's in Pisidia, he's in Turkey. Uh, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So the Judaizers are saying, no, 
we will still have justification through the law. And Paul is saying, no, that's done. Those days are over. In fact, he goes on in the same context of this sermon that he's preaching in the synagogue, preaching to Jews and then converts. He says this, when the congregation was dismissed and he finished his preaching, many of the Jews had converted to Christianity and devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them as they were about to leave to the next town, continue in the grace of God, salvation by faith alone, through grace alone. He said, you continue in that. One of the things that we've got to do when we deal with conflict is we have to learn to flesh out what the heart of the conflict is. In verses 15 and 7, there, there's a little phrase there. It says, after much discussion. Uh, it was uh, a lot of conversations back and forth. What we have here in chapter 15 is just a summarization of the key points of contestable issues. There was a lot of discussion and that, that issue that it takes a lot of discussion to work through conflict really resonates with me. Uh, I want to tell you about a conflict I had. Um, in June of 2013, the church hired me to become a pastor at our church. Um, but five months prior to that, well, that's when I started. Five months prior to that is actually when the church um, concluded with its search process and, and hired me. I went to American Family where I was working as their life sales director. Uh, my job was to help 4,000 agents reach their sales goal. So I was hired, I was doing that job, and um, uh, so five months. So I told them, listen, I'm going to go work for American, for, for the church. And they were like, okay, Lloyd, we'll let you stay. I thought that was very gracious of them. So they let me take five months notice. I think if I had been going to work for State Farm, they probably wouldn't have been as gracious. <laughs> but because I was going to the church and I was doing good work, they were like, fine. Uh, but what immediately happened is during that five months, I went and told all the 23 or so people that worked for me that I was no longer going to be there and somebody else would be coming in soon. I became what was known as a lame duck. You ever heard that title? Uh, I'm the boss that's kind of, it's kind of like the president becomes the last five or six months of the presidency. You know, nobody in Congress, he probably can't even get his wife to listen to him anymore, you know, <laughs> just no power, right? And so, and so he was in a situation where kind of, kind of powerless, right? And I was in that kind of a place. But here's the problem. We have been missing our sales plan for the last couple years, just by a few percent. And I knew that one of the reasons, or one of the ways we could do better is if I could get my group, there was three different units, and they were doing good work, but it was all in silos. I had some people working directly with agents. I had some people taking phone calls from agents. I had some people training people, and they were doing good work, but it wasn't, wasn't integrated at all. And I knew we weren't being productive. And I said, I don't think this can wait five months. I was thinking to myself, and I wanted to finish strong. I said, this can't wait five months. So I brought the five key leaders into a room, and I said, here's the situation. You guys are really doing good work, but we're not producing the kind of results that we could. And we had a couple of meetings back and forth on this, but it didn't take that long. And then finally people said, you know what? It's obvious that we're working in silos, and it's obvious if we stop doing this, we could be more productive. But what I want to say to you is that once you get the issues on the table, you still have some work to do. When it comes to successfully managing conflict, not only do you got to sort through the ideology, the issues, you have to reconcile the people. That brings us to the second part of this model. So you got to get the issues out there, right? And in every case, it was, is salvation by grace and faith, or is it by justification of the law and circumcision? What, what is it? What is it, right? And, but then you have to hear from the key stakeholders. They have to offer their own perspectives. You see, 
Um, when people get invested in an issue, there, there's emotions involved, right? There's feelings involved. And that's why you have to have these discussions and you have to hear to actually flesh stuff out. So here's what 1 Peter says. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. So see his argument. He said, listen, the Holy Spirit chose me to do this. He sent me out first. And, um, and I gave them a pure message. In fact, when I was speaking to Cornelius, uh, while I was preaching, the Holy Spirit came. Before any discussion about circumcision or laws, while I was preaching the gospel about salvation in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came. It's his argument. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith alone. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting a yoke on them that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He said, listen, we've been trying to prove ourselves righteous before God ever since Abraham. And everyone, Abraham all the way down to the present day, has failed. Nobody has been able to keep the law except Jesus. He said, now why are we going to put this yoke on these people when we couldn't even keep it ourselves? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent, and so Peter concludes and he sits down. And then Barnabas and Paul, now they just say, listen, when we've been going out preaching, preaching this simple message of salvation in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and faith in that, uh, God has been blinding the eyes of people that have been in opposition. God has been raising up people that have been lame from birth while we've been going out and preaching this message. God has affirmed what we've been doing through the Holy Spirit. That's their plain argument. And then they sit down down. In a lawsuit, the issue here is that um, as you begin to flesh through conflict, dealing with these personality issues becomes uh, really important. Let me return to this American family story. So it was real clear that um, that we, that everybody knew we could be more effective and productive if we would get integrated. But what we found was we couldn't just go to the solution. We had literally probably another five or six meetings, the five of us in a room, trying to come up with proposals. And then we realized that we had more obstacles. Here's the first obstacle that we found out, that there was a trust issue. Here's how it went. Uh, over a year and a half, we had been trying to reach the sales goal. I had been getting a lot of pressure from senior leaders. They said, Lord, what can you do more? Can you do more? And we tried. We tried various initiatives, and there was a lot of disruption to the people that were in my department. They were working late. They were working early. They were traveling a lot. And we tried four or five different things, and none of them increased the results. And so the manager of one of the departments said, Lloyd, he said, listen. He said, I don't want to do this and let this just be another short-term initiative. I don't want to make this restructuring. And then later on, you guys, you or somebody else tells us that, you know, we got to do something else. This can't be another temporary failed objective. And he was dead on. And I had to own it because I was the one that was driving those changes. 
So I said, listen, I'm gonna call the next person. By this time, they had appointed the, the person who was gonna replace me. And I explained to him the situation and what we were trying to do. And he was like, yeah, I'm behind it. I think you guys need to move forward with that. And so I was able to get through that barrier. But here was another barrier. Uh, of these three different units, one of them was a rock star unit. Everybody in the organization loved this group. And they were concerned that if they integrated and they became support for another group, that they were gonna lose their exposure. They weren't gonna be the rock stars anymore. We might have better results, but they weren't gonna see me as a star. That one took us several meetings to really flesh out, right? We really had to talk about this, and it was one of those things that people don't just come and say at the first meeting. You know, I'm worried about my career promotability. You know, I'm worried about me. I'm not worried about the organization. They don't usually get that out in the first couple of meetings. That takes a little while to flesh out. And so, indeed, we did, we took that time, and we were able to get that fleshed out. Here's what I want to tell you about conflict. When it comes to conflict, there's a couple of major problems that you have to work through. The one part that you have to work through is called the fear of conflict. Fear of conflict, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I've seen this really prevalent in business but I've seen it in my home with my children sometimes. They will be not as open to tell me what the real issues are. Uh, I've seen it at the church where people don't want to hamper their relationships so they won't really tell you how they feel, even though it might lead us to a better solution. I see this fear of conflict happening all the time. In business, about 10 years ago, there was this thing, there's this term called pushback started to get in our vocabulary. And the notion was corporations realized that employees needed to be able to push back to challenge ideas and people when they didn't think it was the optimal solution. And so then people began to be more empowered and folks began to realize that it wasn't just the best decisions didn't come just from the top down that sometimes the best decisions came from the bottom up. And so we need to deal with this issue of conflict. In the Bible, we see this in the conflict between Nabal, Abigail, and King David. The situation, real briefly, is that uh, uh, David was in the desert running from Saul. God had anointed him to be king, but it wasn't time yet. And while he was hiding from Saul, who was trying to kill him, um, he ran across Nabal's shepherds. And they were keeping lots of flock, or sheep, and they protected them. They protected them at no cost. Uh, later on, David and his people, men, are hungry, and they don't have food. And they, they run to Nabal. They send an envoy over to Nabal and say, hey, we were the guys that took care of you in the field at no cost. We're, we, you know, we're struggling out here. Could you help us out? And Nabal says, you know what? There's always these servants around running away from their masters. You know, no, I'm not going to help you out. This food is for my people. And so they, he sent them back away, uh, empty-handed. So David's men come back, they tell him this, this was the situation, and David is hot, he gets hot in the collar. He said, listen, if he has even one son or one male servant in his community, after I finish with him, may the Lord do to me, and even more so. He's like, and, and he was not thinking that this is wrong, but this is how he's thinking. And so he goes, now what happens is the servants of Nabal, they run to Abigail, his wise wife, Nabal means fool. His wise wife hears this story. She gets some food together, runs out to meet David as they come, falls down before him. No fear of conflict. Here she is, uh, the wife of now an enemy of David. She's entering into the conflict and she says, listen, 
David, here, here's, we know what you've done. Lord, David, we, everybody knows you're going to become the king, and everybody knows my husband is a fool. He, he, his name means fool. Don't pay any mind to him. But God is going to bless you. And you know, David, that you should not be avenging blood in your own hands. She says this gently, but she says it. And David just blesses her. He says, you know what, Lord, thank you. He, he begins to thank God. Lord, you didn't want me to avenge this stuff by my own hands. Thank you for sending this woman. He blesses the woman, receives her gift, sends her on her way. Very soon thereafter, Nabal struck with some kind of a heart attack or something and dies. The issue is, if you are the kind of person, and I believe all of us fall into this sometimes, where we don't engage in conflict because we are afraid of somebody's power, of relationship, whatever is going on, we've got to remember that to trust in the Lord. Yes, you need to pray. Yes, you need to speak the truth in love. But yes, you need to engage. That's the first barrier, is a fear of conflict. The second one is uh, undue harshness. Some of us just like to brawl too much. Every time we get into a fight, it's about winning. It's not about advancing the cause. It's about, it's about winning. Um, the problem, <laughs> I'm looking at my sons over here. The biggest, the biggest time when I offend this is when I have to discipline my son sometimes. I'm, I'm harsh and I'm not really trying to listen to what they have to say and what their opinion is. I just feel like I know the thing and I am the dad, right? All by all, you know, I am the dad, so I should be right, right? And I got, a, I got a feeling that some of you are that kind of way as well, that you're not concerned so much about what is right as much as you're concerned about being right. Proverbs 18 and 1, an unfriendly person pursues selfish ends and against all sound judgments starts quarrels. I had a wonderful friend of mine, but he had this problem in spades. We were bowling at a bowling alley and uh, he loved to evangelize or to try to evangelize. He was never very successful because he always got into arguments with non-Christians. <laughs> You're not gonna argue anybody into, into faith. That isn't going to work. And so he got into some kind of argument about the gospel. I'm just trying to bowl. He's arguing with people. He's trying to win the argument, not be winsome in how to share the faith lovingly with a, with a non-Christian. So I think that we have these two things that we've got to deal with. If you're the kind of person who's afraid of conflict, I'm saying trust God and engage. If you're the kind of person that wants to win, I'm trying to get you to think, remember that the gospel is about grace and truth. We don't sacrifice the, the, the truth, but we, we, we pursue the truth with grace and love and gentleness. That's what leads us to be successful. Because arguments are an expression of love for God and the church. If you listen to what Peter and what Paul and Barnabas say, there's nothing contentious in it. There's no personal attacks. They're only concerned with establishing the truth of the gospel. So they're, they're, they're trying to deal with the theology, not with the people. And it's an expression of love. So as you deal with conflict, the first thing is you've got to list out the important issues. Then you've got to deal with the people, with gentleness and, and, and truth. You've got to, the, the key stakeholders have to offer their perspectives, and you might have to work through some, some surface problems to get to the real issues. 
But then once you get to that point, you, you have a, you're at a place where you can volunteer a solution. And so what James does is he begins to, he comes up with a solution. He has been listening to what the Judaizers have said. He's been listening to Peter and Paul and Barnabas. He's been listening to the Holy Spirit. You'll see that uh, in the prayer. It says, it says in, the, in, that, in the letter that they write, it says, it seems to good to us and to the Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit is working in the middle, in the midst of this model. This isn't just a slick little, you know, project management tool I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit working its way through biblical principles. It's, different, it's a different deal altogether. But he doesn't offer this solution until he listens. To answer a matter before listening is folly and shame. And so he doesn't commit that error. And then he says this. He affirms the truth of what Peter has said. He even quotes Amos 9, 11 through 13, which basically says that God in times past promised that he was going to enfold the, the Gentiles into, into his people. But he doesn't just deal with this whole issue that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. He also deals with some people issues, and that's what he does in 19 through 21. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't throw the law on him, them and with their circumcision. That's what he's saying. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food that's dedicated to, to, uh, to idols, sacrificed to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now listen to what his reasoning is. For the law of Moses is preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So what James has in mind here is that he knows that when Barnabas and Paul and others that God sends to the Gentiles, that whatever city they're going to go to, there's going to be Jewish believers there that have a rich theological history, and he's concerned about the conscience of the Jews. He's not just concerned about just the gospel itself. He's also concerned about relationships. And, and what he's saying to them is, listen, you, in, in order to adhere, in order to have a fellowship with Jewish people, these essential things we need to keep in place. D don't eat food, uh, blood. Don't use blood as food. Uh, don't eat food that's sacrificed to idols. Don't participate in sexual immorality. And don't eat meat that's strangled. And so what we see in this declaration, what we see is both grace and truth in this conclusion. And I want to su suggest to you that that's very important. This picture is, is hard to see. Um, on the left-hand side is my mom's pastor. His name is uh, uh, Pastor uh, Hayes. On the right is my mom. She just turned 85 years old this earlier this month, and this was at her, her celebration. So this picture represents the celebration, but for me, it actually represents conflict resolution. In my family, on my maternal grandmother's side, every time there's two surviving uh, children of nine, my mom is the oldest now, she's 85. They just lost a sister uh, about three, about, about two months prior. Um, 70, 75, 80, 85. Every five years on one of those landmark birthdays, the honorees' children are supposed to have this big celebration. 
Any of you guys have any cultural issues, like that kind of strange cultural things that you do that don't really make any sense anymore, right? And so what happens is we do this big banquet. We rent out a hall, we have this uh, great meal, and then the children of the honorees, whether they can afford it or not, are expected to pay for all this thing. And it turns into the thousands, all right? So we did this for my mom at age 70, and then my other uh, aunts and so forth are having these done by their kids, right? So we did this for my mom when she was 75. We did this at 80, and, and it was fine because I was working for an American family, and I had money, so wifey didn't mind as, as much with me spending thousands. But, but but, but now under a pastor's salary, you just can't do that kind of stuff. So, so it comes up, and my aunt, so my, my, uh, my, my favorite cousin calls me because my sister doesn't want to confront me. It's fear of conflict. Uh, so anyway, my uh, cousin calls me. She says, hey, he says, your, your mom's birthday party's coming up. I said, yeah, 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 you know, she is my mom. He says, and you know, we have this thing and we have these big parties. And so how much money do you have? And I'm saying to myself, you, you sent my sister Renee sent you on this mission. Of, why did she do? She just could have called me myself. Anyway, so we're talking. And, and I say to her, you know, I just got $300. That's, that's really all I can, can afford. And I can tell she didn't like that answer. Right? And so the conversation was starting to turn negative. It was starting to get caustic. So I figured I had to politely disengage for that conversation. And I called my brother Robert. And I said, Robert, he lives in Lansing, Michigan. I said, Robert, I said, here's the situation. I said, you know, mom's turning up. I said, I got $300. How much do you got? Less than that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's why I paid pretty much for the last two. So you don't have any money. I don't have any money. What are we going to do? He said, Lloyd, let me, let me call Renee, my sister. Let me call Nanette, my cousin. And, and we'll see what we can do. So, so they call. Here's what they come up with. So my mom has this favorite restaurant. This is it. This is the place. And we're going to rent out a private room. We're going to cater in a cake. We're going to ask people, the family to come, and they'll pay for their own moves. Lloyd, as usual, you're going to pay for mom's food. I said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. Lloyd, you'll pay for your mom's food. And, and then we're just, and everybody's going to bring presents. And we're going to have a good time. And we had a great time. It was a beautiful Saturday. Um, her pastor was able to come. Lots of family members came. I talked to my mom last week. She felt really honored. But also Dave Ramsey would have been honored on this too. <laughs> from Financial Peace University, right? Because we didn't spend money that we didn't have, right? And we didn't go into debt. The grace was that my mom needed to be honored. She's 85 years old. Every time I leave Chicago, I wonder in my heart whether this is the last time. So we needed to honor my mom, but the truth is that we couldn't afford to do what we had done in the past. So we, it's wonderful when you have somebody that volunteers a spiritual solution right? um, that, that just makes sense, that, that can help settle the argument. That's what we see in James, and that's what my, my brother Robert did in that family dispute. I want to suggest to you that this model uh, can work beyond the church that this is a business model, this is a family model, this is a model that you can use if you are um, volunteering in neighborhood organizations. I wanna suggest to you that the Bible, it has implications for all parts of your life. And that brings us to the last part of this model. So you gotta list out the important issues. What's the, what are the issues, what are the issues? Let's get them out. We gotta, we gotta deal with people. People gotta speak their own perspectives. And we need to be honest about how we feel. Uh, not making it personal, but be honest. 
And then after the stuff is out there, somebody, a leader can stand up and volunteer a solution. And then the last thing is that we need to engage the entire community when it's a community-based issue. So here's what happens. Acts 15 and 22, after James volunteers that solution, the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. You see, this solution that they came to wasn't just James and Peter. It wasn't a top-down thing. The whole church got involved in this. And this is really important because when we're trying to get commitment, it comes as a result of real unity and it's always to be preferred over artificial harmony. Say, I'm talking about real unity versus artificial harmony. I want to suggest that there are some times when we need the counsel of many people in order to get stuff right, both in the church, in your families, and in, in your workplaces, that you need a broad base of counsel in order to get stuff right. Proverbs 11:14: for lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. One of the, the cultural things that I had to get used to at high, working at High Point was that we have a culture of people coming alongside of you and whispering in your ear, hey, that was good, but that not so good. That was good, that not so good. And uh, because I came out of a culture at American Family that wasn't quite like that, it took me a while to get used to that more confrontational culture. That there are good advisors, but what I have seen is, now we'll do things like somebody's writing a sermon, and um, we'll go to a meeting and we'll have five or six people who will, the outline will be put out there, and they'll be like, eh, that's pretty good, uh, this not so good. Uh, here's a better illustration. Here you might not even be right. And I'm beginning to see how we're beginning to preach better, deeper sermons. I, I submit to that kind of scrutiny, and then other people on my team, they do it as well, and the result is that we get better preaching, I hope. Real unity comes when we deal with conflict. Okay, I saw this played out at, at our church. This, what I'm about to share with you now is a real testimony from a woman at a church, a young woman, about 32 years old, married. Not, this conflict was about 18 months ago. Real conflict, her words. There was a church meeting, and one of the issues was that there was a surplus from a year-end gift. We had a year-end gift, and we asked for 85000 We got 125000 And the elders were like, man, we never seen anything like this. What are we going to do with this money? And we were like, well, we'll just come up with some new ideas of what to do with the money, and we'll go to the congregational meeting. We'll tell them this is what we want to do with the money, and no big deal. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. So we went to a meeting, and um, so this is the meeting that she's referring to. The discussion was about what to do with the surplus, and the suggestion was basically decide how to spend it and then distribute it. People were coming up with suggestions about what to spend it on, and a woman up front raised her hand and pointed out that it was wrong to create new items to spend the surplus on because the money had been raised under some specific situations that were put forward by the elders. In other words, the elders said that we're going to do this with the money, and now what you guys want to do is you want to change it. And the people that have given it, there's no way that they can, you know, be involved in this. 
People seemed to ignore her. So this is this woman reflecting. She saw this. She said, people seemed to ignore her. And they kept, kept talking. They kept talking about new projects that the money could be applied to. I didn't think her point was understood. Someone made the suggestion that people who had given money and didn't like what we decided to spend the extra on could just ask for it back. At the time, my husband and I were relatively new to High Point. They weren't here not, not more than a year. And I am always hesitant to speak up in meetings, but I really felt that the woman's point was good and that people just didn't understand. I raised my hand and I said, this wasn't a matter of what to do with the money. This was an ethical issue. Is it right to spend money you raised by telling the funders you were going to spend it one way and then change your mind later? I said that spending it on other things and making donors ask for their money back if they did not approve was not fair. No one was going to say that. It was just another way of reappropriating the funds without really getting permission. Now here's my interpretation on this. We could have pushed that thing through. There were all the elders had pretty much said, yeah, this is what we should do. Most of the congregation was like, yeah, this is, this is cool. And so we could have pushed it through, but we would have had artificial harmony and not unity. We would have violated the consciousness, the conscience of these women, and there were other people I'm sure that were thinking this, and we probably would have made the wrong decision. Back to the story. My main point was that if we raise the money for specific things, it should be spent on those things because that was the understanding on which it was raised. I know I asked something about how reallocating the money reconciled with who we are as a church. You get the sense that this is important to her. She's making some really good arguments. She wasn't loud, but she was, she was passionate. After my comment, someone was upset because they didn't understand, this is really funny, why there was conflict over a surplus when High Point had been through so many terrible situations with deficits and money issues in the past. The idea was that, listen, most of the time we come here, we're talking about we don't have enough money. Now we come in there for more money. What's the problem? That's what I thought he said. And I was sitting there and there, I was like, yeah, what's the problem? There was a problem. At this point, Nick spoke up and said that he had changed his mind because it was, in fact, an, eth an ethical issue. And then I think most people realized what the real issue was. Were we going to do what we said and what people who gave the money, were we going to keep our word to them? This was a big deal to me. Because I don't think I've ever really seen women taken seriously in church government before. So when people in the church, women, men, prominent 50-year members, and the newest member in the church, even an attender who's not a member, when they come and when they put their things out there, the Holy Spirit has a way of working in the midst of those disagreements and helping us settle on the solution that he has for us. It took about 15 or 20 minutes and it took that woman to be able to stand for it boldly before the Holy Spirit impacted Nick and then the rest of us that she was right. And so we ended up giving that higher number and spreading it out over those eight or nine different organizations that we said we were gonna give the money to. And we ended up with unity and not artificial harmony. So going back to our text, what happened when they wrote that letter to the churches? What was the end result of the church 
uh, listing out the issues, the key stakeholders offering their opinions, someone volunteering a solution, and people then engaging the whole community to get the thing right. Here's what happened. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church and together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. The Gentiles were glad that they didn't have to jump through more hoops. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, Judas and Silas, they were sent off by the believers with the blessings of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So what we see is that the recipients of the message were encouraged and strengthened. We see that Paul, that Silas and Barabbas were sent away in with, with, with peace. They were sent away with, hey, uh, thank you for coming. We appreciate you. But most importantly, the gospel continued to flourish. They had settled this theological issue, which was really important. What is the gospel? And now not only could Paul and, 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 um, and Barnabas preach it, but other men could preach and the gospel could move forward. I want to suggest, say to you this, this morning that um, this is the power of the Word of God, that it has application beyond just the church. I want you to think about this by way of application. The last conflict, major conflict you've ever been involved in. I want you to compare the resolution of that conflict to this four-point model. List, offer, up, select, uh, uh, ideas, volunteer, a solution, engage. I want you to compare how your last conflict got resolved to that particular model. And then I want you to do one other thing. I want you to think about a conflict you're engaged in right now and how you might persuade the parties involved in the conflict to consider this biblical, this spiritual-based conflict resolution model. And I also want you to keep in mind something really important, that this wasn't just a neat kind of tool that they came up with. What really speaks to me in the letter that, that they sent is that there was a real strong sense that this wasn't just the work of human activity, but that the Holy Spirit had superintended the whole council. For, for they write, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. This is 1528, and to us, not to burden with you with anything beyond these requirements. That, that this kind of loving process is the process by which the Holy Spirit can work among you. That we can't do this by our own, in our own flesh. There's certain conflicts that some of you are dealing with right now, whether it be with a spouse or in a business situation, where you're going to need the Spirit. You're going to need the Spirit to give you favor when you go to, to bring it up. And you're going to need the Spirit, if it's in a group of Christians, to work among you in order to bring out the right solution. That it's the Spirit and the, and the gospel that are working together in our lives to build God's kingdom.